Well, good morning. It's good to see you all today. And uh, I have been told that I have the most difficult voice to EQ of any voice that comes up here. And I see Lance looking down. And I hear the cave that I'm now standing in. And during that prayer, I was surprised to hear a familiar voice. Uh, did not know that he was here. Jeff, how are you doing? Um, improving, I think, very quickly. Very good, very good. Good to see you here. Good to have you back. Oh, yeah, that's all where I want to be. Good, good. We know that. Yes, I'd rather you be up here, too. So, <laughs> 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 let, me, uh, let me pray once again. Father, uh, just a joy to be in your presence. And uh, I would just ask that you just push me out of the way and that your Holy Spirit would uh, just speak truth through the power of your word, that our hearts, that our minds would be open and that we would uh, come to know you more, uh, to love you more, and to uh, serve you more. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in an age of anxiety with many sources. The constant connection with social media, economic unrest, terrorism, moral upheaval, political challenges, gender dysphoria, COVID, the pandemic, division in the church, and the list goes on and on and on. Christians are not immune to these waves of anxiety and often feel hopeless for our country and at times feel like the best we can do is just simply hold on. There is a place for growing weary of it. We are to be sad for some of the developments we see in our time. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus told us. John Stott writes, there is such a thing as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them. We need to learn how to mourn for the state of the world, and at the same time, learn to be courageous and cheerful because of the hope of the gospel. Pessimism must never become our default. An overly pessimistic view of the world leads to a defensive mindset. A defensive mindset leads to defensive decision-making, which in turn leads to maintenance rather than mission. How then do we move forward with faith rather than fear during these challenging times? When the ground shifts, we want to feel the sturdiness of the church's structure the rock-solid foundation of the gospel we believe in. So how do we move forward with faith and not fear? It's in your little study note, but if you'd like to turn with me, I'll be referring to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, if you'd like to turn uh, in your Bible. Hebrews 12, beginning with verse 1, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
I want to share with you this morning four truths from this passage that speak of moving from fear to faith. The first one is we are not alone. We are not alone. As we are bombarded with everything going on around us, it is easy for us to feel alone. This text would have us see the world differently. Yes, we are surrounded, but not by the gospel's enemies, but by the cloud of witnesses. We are surrounded by the heavenly gathering of witnesses, and they are cheering us on as we see the race before us. We are to lift our eyes from our cultural surroundings and listen to the words of the psalmists, the laments of the prophets. We read the stories of those in our church history that persevered their own cultural challenges, and we hear of missionaries that have struggled to share the gospel in foreign lands. And as we do this, we come to realize that spiritual struggle is the norm. It's simply not the exception. The cloud of witnesses would say to us to keep our gospel bearings. The gospel will enable us to keep our footing when the world is shaking. We are not sliding down a hill into a bottomless pit, nor are we climbing up a ladder into the heavens. The world is what it has always been. It is a place where the powers and principalities set themselves against the living God. Jesus Christ promises to return again and will reign. We are not the first generation of people to study a particular passage of Scripture. We are not the first to face challenges. One such man was the great Bible translator William Tyndale, who had his own set of challenges. He lived in England in the early 1500s, so allow me to read you a portion of his biography. William Tyndale could speak seven languages and was proficient in ancient Hebrew and Greek. He was a priest whose intellectual gifts and disciplined life could have taken him a long way in the church. Had he not had one compulsion, to teach English men and women the good news of justification by faith. Tyndale had discovered this doctrine when he read Erasmus's Greek edition of the New Testament. What better way to share this message with his countrymen than to put an English version of the New Testament into the hands of every man and woman? This, in fact, became Tyndall's life passion, aptly summed up in the words of his mentor, Christ desires his mysteries to be published abroad as widely as possible. I would that the Gospels and the Epistles of Paul were translated into all languages of all Christian people and that they might be read and known. During these years, Tyndale also gave himself methodically to good works because, as he said, my part be not in Christ, if mine heart be not to follow and live according as I teach. On Mondays, he visited other religious refugees from England. On Saturdays, he walked Antwerp streets, seeking to minister to the poor. On Sundays, he dined with merchants in homes, reading scripture before and after dinner. The rest of his week, he devoted to writing tracts and books and translating the Bible. We do not know who planned and financed the plot that ended his life. But we do know that it was carried out by Henry Phillips, 
a man who had been accused of robbing his father and of gambling himself into poverty. Phillips became Tyndale's guest at meals and soon was one of the few privileged to look at Tyndale's books and papers. In May 1535, Phillips lured Tyndale away from the safety of his quarters and into the arms of soldiers. Tyndale was immediately taken to the castle of Vilvorde, the great state prison of the Low Countries, and accused of heresy. Finally, in early August 1536, Tyndale was condemned as a heretic, degraded from the priesthood, and delivered to the secular authorities for punishment. On Friday, October 6, after local officials took their seats, Tyndale was brought to the cross in the middle of the town square and given a chance to recant. That refused, he was given a moment to pray. English historian John Fox said he cried out, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Then he was bound to the beam, and both an iron chain and a rope were put around his neck. Gunpowder was added to the brush and logs. At the signal of a local official, the executioner, standing behind Tyndale, quickly tightened the noose, strangling him. Then an official took up a lighted torch and handed it to the executioner who set the wood ablaze. We are not the first to face challenges. We are surrounded by witnesses in heaven, but we are also surrounded by witnesses on earth. We are not alone. We are part of a church that is both global and local. The church in heaven, the church around the world, and the church local here at IBC. We stand in a long line of believers who stood firm in their faith and rejoiced to suffer for their Savior. We were made not to stand on our own, but together. We need the local church to embody God's love toward us. The only way we will stand the hatred of the world is if we are immersed in the love of God. The only way we can live without the approval of others is if we are assured of God's approval of us in Christ. Unless we are overcome by the fear of God, we will become overcome by the fear of men. We need the church. That we need the church to transform us and show us God's transformative love toward us. We need to get to the point to where it is unthinkable that we would live apart from our church family. Our church is to be an oasis of hope and love in the middle of a dark and dusty world. Number two, sin and struggle do not define us. They may hinder us, but they simply do not define us. Hebrews 12, 1 again, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Do we as believers slip and fall? Of course we do. We are saints who sometimes sin. We are racers who sometimes stumble. But sins and struggles do not define us. The Christian is not defined by the sins of the past nor the struggles of the present, but by the vision of the future. 
We see the finish line and we run to win the prize. What are some of the sins that may ensnare us in an age of anxiety? Two that stand out, number one, grumbling, and number two, worrying. Both are signs that we are meeting cultural challenges with fear and not faith. Both are sins that easily ensnare us. Let's start with grumbling. When Paul told the church in Philippi to work out your own salvation, the first commandment that he gave was don't grumble. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So why grumbling? Why start here? Could it be that Paul was thinking of the children of Israel? They had just been miraculously delivered from Pharaoh, and in no time at all, they begin to grumble. They chose grumbling over gratitude. Fast forward to the church in Philippi. The church, like Israel, had been brought out of slavery from sin and death through the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. These Philippians had received atonement for their sins. They passed through the waters of baptism and headed toward the promised land. In the dark wilderness of the first century, Paul knew that grumbling and arguing would keep them from shining like stars in the world. We too live in a, in a twisted and crooked generation. Crooks are elevated and perversion celebrated. And we find ourselves grumbling about the cultural moment we find ourselves in. We long for the way things used to be but we will never be faithful with the present as long as we are yearning for the past. Ecclesiastes 4.10 says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. The only era we should long for as a future one is for the kingdom of God to come fully on earth as it is in heaven. Grumblers don't tend to be very persuasive or appealing when, they're when they share their faith. In fact, grumblers rarely share their faith at all. It's hard to joyfully and consistently proclaim the gospel when all you do is complain about your mission field. One Bible teacher writes, Whenever we look at the state of our world and we wag our fingers and shake our head and wish we would have born in another time, or another place, we question God's sovereignty and resent the task he has given us. Faithfulness starts not with grumbling, but with gratitude. This is our time. Holding firm to the word of life may be hard, but it is a thrilling adventure. We are not digging in like cranky people who resent cultural change. In fact, we aren't supposed to be digging in at all. It's called standing. We're supposed to be standing. We're simply standing with joy, knowing that his love will spread to all people. The second sin is worry. 
Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When we live with a, with a lack of anxiety toward the future, we communicate the truth that our God is worthy of trust. We don't fret over the future because he holds it in his hands. We don't wring our hands in worry because we know he is charting the course. That sort of confidence invites others into it. In an age of anxiety, peace that can only come from Almighty God becomes compelling. Peace is what makes us stand out. When we worry, take it to the Lord. Don't rehearse it over and over again in your mind. Easier said than done, for sure. The third, the third thing that Hebrews teaches us is we have a mission. We have a mission. Hebrews 12 again, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The focus is on the race ahead and the endurance that we will need to run it. This is our race. This is our mission. We are following Jesus. The race we are in is to become more like Jesus and to make him known. It's easy for us to become distracted by cultural challenges and look at the state of the world and begin to wonder if we are involved in a lost cause. It's as if we find ourselves saying, what's the use? I'm going to keep running in the right direction, but I really don't expect to get anywhere. If we think we're going to lose, we're not going to run as fast. Runners compete to win, and winning is not defined by what's going on around us. It's so easy for us to get overwhelmed and discouraged. The gospel destroys pessimism. If we truly believe that God's word has authority, then it will not return void. That God will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By doing this, God builds us up for spiritual battle, not just for merely surviving a spiritual siege. The world always has and always will proclaim its myths and messages. So many lies the world proclaims. I'm not going to go into really any of these now, but plenty of resources out there about so much of the lies and myths the world is talking about now. But looking at the broader picture that will help us know how to respond in a biblical manner, let's look at three. Three ways to, to respond to a non-believer. Number one, longing. There is a longing in everyone's heart that the world should look a certain way to them. Why? Because everyone wants their story to be true. Because every human heart was created to worship and we are not given the choice whether to worship or not. We will all worship. The question is, what will we worship? The longing is for fulfillment. The longing is for a happy ending to the story called life. The world is not finding it because Jesus is the only longing that will ultimately satisfy. Our responsibility is as believers is to connect God's good news with the people's longings. The difficulty is to find common ground with others and look past those myths people believe 
and discover belongings behind them. Number two, the falsehood. It's not enough, however, to discover that, that longing. We must also challenge what is bad about the myth. The gospel doesn't simply affirm the deepest longing. It challenges and reshapes those longings. And in doing so, it exposes what is false. If we don't expose the lie as well, we simply show that the Christian view is just an option among many. We offer truth and expose the lie. Number three, the light. The light of the gospel. When we shine the light of the gospel, we are not merely saying that it is right and that is wrong, that this is right and that is wrong, but this is better. The gospel tells a better story. According to a recent study, 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. Find the things you enjoy the most and go after them. 91% of Americans say the following, to find yourself, look within yourself. Same survey, this one now directed at Christians who regularly attend church. 66% of church-going Christians say, the highest goal in life is enjoying yourself, and you should find those things you enjoy most and go after them. 76% of Christians say that looking within yourself is the way to find yourself. Apparently, when it comes to the pursuit of happiness, Christians can look a lot like the rest of the world. The Bible says in Mark 12, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We have a mission, love God and love our neighbors. Number four, lastly, Jesus is Lord of our hearts and all of history. The journey of us all is sanctification. That process is a slow, difficult, painful process. The struggles we face are not unusual, strange things. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. And for us here in the United States, our fiery trial is pretty minor compared to so many believers around the world. You think we're a divided country as a church now? You only need go back 150 years to the Civil War to see how much worse it was. In the article Christianity in the Civil War, the author writes, By 1860, there were nearly 4 million slaves in the United States. One out of every seven Americans belonged to another. Before 1830, many leaders in the anti-slavery movement came from the South. Three of the nation's leading Protestant denominations, the Presbyterians, Methodists, and Baptists, all divided over slavery or related issues. These church divisions fractured political parties and ultimately helped to divide the nation. As early as 1818, Presbyterians unanimously declared at their General Assembly that 
the voluntary enslaving of one part of the human race by another is utterly inconsistent with the law of God. Ironically, however, the same assembly upheld the decision to depose a Presbyterian minister because he held anti-slavery views. And in 1845, the General Assembly agreed that slavery was, in fact, a biblical institution. Blacks were not allowed to serve as chaplains until 1863. Altogether, 14 black chaplains served U.S. regiments. One of the best known was H.M. Turner, whose preaching had drawn congressmen to hear him. He was known as the Negro Spurgeon. Many Civil War generals stood so committed to observing the Sabbath that it influenced their military operations. Stonewall Jackson would fight only more ordinary battles on Sunday. William Rosecrans refused to pursue a fleeing enemy force on a Sabbath day. Other generals attributed defeats to the fact they had violated the Sabbath by fighting on that day. Many preachers, especially in the North, felt that through the war, the final glorious reign of God would begin. Both sides thought the war would be over in three months. Instead, it lasted four years, until 364,000 Union and approximately 260,000 Confederate soldiers lay dead from bullets and disease. More Americans died in the Civil War than died in all other American wars combined. The real battles, however, really aren't being waged out there. They're being waged here in the human heart. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We look at what's going on in our nation, in our culture, in our society, and it appears that it is out of control. That in no way should surprise us, but it does. I think about what this Bible teacher said, the danger is that we replace hope with something else. We will either replace hope with the fear of the future or the nostalgia of the past. Some might think, I guess we're at the point where it's in God's hands. Never left his hands. Didn't catch him by surprise. He's always been and always will be in control. Or the flip side, why can't things be the way they used to be? If only, if only, and fill in the blank. Hope gives us cheerful courage because we know that God will right all wrongs. Injustice will not go unnoticed by him. I like what this author said. It says, we betray our faith when we are more united by bitterness and grievances against the world than by cheerful confidence in God's purposes for the world and our love for the people who may injure us.
back in November, my wife and I were in the airport in Austin, waiting to catch our flight back home. I was sitting there and I saw a man, arms filled with suitcases, running down the hall toward me. He was obviously late to catch his plane and was running as fast as he could so he wouldn't miss it. And as he ran by me, I immediately saw his little girl. She was probably seven or eight years old, about 50 feet behind him. She, too, was running as fast as her little legs would carry in the hope that she would catch up with him. She had a drink in one hand and a big box of french fries in the other. And as she passed by right in front of me, she tripped and fell. The drink sprayed across the floor in one direction, fries in the other. And I glanced down the hall just for a moment, wanting to be sure that her dad saw her stumble. The dad stopped, looked back at her, their eyes met just for a moment. And then he turned around the corner and was out of sight. For just an instant, I wanted to go after him and tell him how he had just devastated his little girl. Instead, I rushed over along with a few others. We helped up this girl, tears now streaming down her face. She pushed us aside, and within moments, she too was gone. The girl had done everything right. Her dad, everything wrong. She trusted him, and in her darkest moment, he let her down. When we fix our eyes on the world, there will be no one there to pick us up. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we will run the race with endurance and we will receive the prize. We may be on the verge of a new dark ages for our culture, or we may be on the verge of the greatest revival the world has ever known. It most certainly has happened before. We may be in the final days before Jesus' return. We may be thousands of years away from his return. Some Bible scholars believe that the apostles thought that Christ would turn, return in their lifetime. We are most certainly too long for the return of our King. We do not know what tomorrow will bring, but we do know the Lord of history. No matter how dark our circumstances may seem, we are a people of hope in the living God. In the darkest of times are the moments when hope comes into its own, even when the evidence says that the cause is lost. It's not hard to maintain faith when everything seems to be working out. True hope rests assured in the coming victory when everything seems to be failing. And when this is the hope that is going to grab the attention of the world of darkness. We live in an age of fear and despair and hatred. 
Let us be the people of faith and hope and love. Let us run with endurance. The joy of Jesus is ours. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do see the world just crumbling around us, and we wonder. And yet your word has commanded us to fix our eyes continually on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May that be true for the people here of IBC and in this community, those who know you and believe in you and trust in you, that we would run the race with endurance and that we would forever just bow humbly before you, looking to love you more and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We thank you, Jesus, that our hope is in you. And we pray these things in your precious holy name. Amen.